0: Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um... You know, I don't do that whole, give us a review, give us five stars um, stuff anymore. Um, And I'm not gonna do it now. But if if you're inclined to do do us a solid turn, please do it. And if not, not. Life will go on. Um, So where to begin? Uh, I'm recording this a little late on Friday. I've had a sort of slow start to my day. Um, There's all sorts of drama. Um I guess we'll start with speaking of drama, we'll start with this uh Mansion Biden thing. Um so I had to do cnn last night for it. Um on, on, talking about it. I was on with Van Jones, which it's just such a interesting course change in my life that brought me to be on TV with Van Jones, but it was all fine. Um uh, you know, he's mellow. I've mellowed whatever. Um although my wife said it, he at least appeared not to be super happy to be on TV with me. We were both doing it remotely so I couldn't see him. Um regardless um I guess I'm just in a in a place right now where either it's my mood or it's the events that are making it seem like it's just a mood on my part. But I think a lot of the things that everyone's just getting super excited about just aren't all that exciting. Um, I wrote the Wednesday G file about this. Um, I didn't think I was going to get as impassioned about it, but, um, you know, earlier in the week, there were all these headlines about damn, Merrick Garland refuses to rule out prosecuting Trump. It was a headline everywhere. Um, and not just on, you know, mainstream media, not just on the left, but you know, it was at national review. It was, it was we didn't use the headline, but we used the phrase of dispatch and, um, uh, you know, and if you, I, I'm not going to go too deep into this because you've, if, if you're a dispatch member, you've read it, so you don't need to be reminded. Um, but, uh, this just struck me as a really sort of dumb overreaction. I mean, I get, I don't want to say it's dumb cause I get it. You know, you got to sort of cover it um, but and some and if there's an overreaction, sometimes the overreaction makes it newsworthy in and of itself. Um, and I don't mean that necessarily just in a sort of Republicans' pounds kind of way. But um all Merrick Garland said was uh we're going to follow our procedures and the rule of law. No one is above the law. Um, we're gonna follow the facts and make, uh, proper and right decisions based on the facts and the law when, um, when appropriate, you know, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing, but that's the gist of what he said. That's what he's supposed to say. And, you know, my whole, the whole point of the G file was, um, the opposite would be big news, right? If, if an attorney general said, in advance of an investigation, right? Because the investigation's ongoing, right? So, but said in, inv- in advance of the conclusion of an investigation said, yeah, we've just decided we're going to rule out um, prosecuting Donald Trump no matter what we find, that would be a big deal. That would be huge, right? That would basically be saying we have in effect preemptively pardoned somebody. Um, and He can't say that, you know, and so like everybody's freaking out about how, you know, the attorney general didn't deny that Trump could be charged. Um, If you follow some of like the cable news chatter about this, it's very much a the walls are closing in on Trump kind of tone and tenor. And there's just zero evidence for that. Um, You know, uh, there's zero evidence that they have anything close to the goods. Um, and they re- you really do need, you know, again, I, I hate that whole the president is above laws and below the law kind of thing. Um, but you do need actually, you know, as for all practical purposes, you need more evidence um, against a former president or a sitting president, certainly, um, than you do against Joe Schmo down the street. Um, and the reason for that is if it's a close call, if you're not sure you can make the case, if you're not sure that even if you have the right jury, um, you can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, it would be insane to charge a former president with, you know, crimes, particularly, you know, these kinds of crimes. Um, and so just the, the bar is going to be higher for an AG for a justice department and really a president. To make a decision to launch um, a criminal prosecution against a former president, then it is, then it's gonna be against some, you know, um guy in Queens who's got, you know, heroin rolled up inside of rugs he's importing from from Persia. Um, I should say Persian rugs he's importing from Iran. Although I really think we should go back to calling it Persia. Um so anyway, I I like. I think the whole pants on fire, head on fire, hair on fire, whatever the right phrase is, um, flame on, uh, feeding frenzy we had last week, earlier this week, um, over the Garland, you know, uh, interview with NBC was just sort of silly. Like this was a, it was essentially, and so, and the same thing goes for the Washington Post story about how the grand jury asked witnesses about Donald Trump. What else is the grand jury going to do? It's investigating a criminal uh, criminal conspiracy, seditious conspiracy, uh, voter fraud, whatever the whatever we're going to call, you know, the fake electors and the January 6th stuff, whatever that whole big lie, you know, complex is. The Justice Department is already investigating it. They're convening a grand jury, they're bringing witnesses before to get to the bottom of it. And people are shocked that they're asking questions about the guy at the center of it who would be the chief beneficiary of uh, this conspiracy if it were successful, of course, they're going to ask questions about Trump. Um, and, you know, and they should ask questions about Trump. You know, one of the things that, you know, grand jury investigations are supposed to do is hold is actually clear people's names sometimes, too. It's like, we took a hard look at this and we found that there was no there there. We, and so, therefore, we're not prosecuting that's, that's an important function of these things. And so even if you thought Donald Trump was completely innocent, you would want them to ask questions about Donald Trump, because that's how you're going to end up proving that, you know, there's no there there. Sometimes you get innocent people who say stuff like, I welcome this investigation because I find, I know that it will ultimately clear my name. Right. Um, And so the, it would be much worse if prosecutors were willfully refusing to ask, those questions, but those questions do not constitute proof that the walls are closing in on Trump and that there's a uh, a investigation targeting Trump or any of that kind of stuff. It was just there's so many people who want this stuff to be true who need the story to expand to the next level um, that they're just getting out over their skis. And it's so funny that I'm the guy making this point because I'm supposed if you just go by my detractors, I'm the Trump obsessed guy who always believes the worst about him and, in all the rest. And I usually hear this from people who actually don't read or listen to me. Um, but I'm here telling you, like, look, I would, I would love for Trump to be caught dead to rights and all this stuff. And I just, as everybody knows, I think Trump is is fundamentally guilty of trying to steal the election and, 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 and all of those related things. Um, doesn't mean he, he's, you can prove or that he fits Liz Cheney's seven point, you know, uh theory about what he did and all that kind of stuff, there's room to disagree about all that. There's room to disagree about, you know, as as Charlie Cook and I did about how much um how how much provable criminal indictable blame Trump has for inciting um the mob on January sixth. But sort of directionally, just as a summation kind of point the guy's obviously guilty and I think he should be totally radioactive for American politics for a thousand years and, um, no one should be allowed to plant crops near, uh, um, Mar-a-Lago. He should be so radioactive. Um, but he's not, and that's, you know, that's life. And, um, you know, I, I, well, I'll get to that in a second. My only point for right, right this moment is, is like, like my biases, I understand the biases that the mainstream media and others have um, for wanting every piece of bad news to be confirmation of even worse news for Donald Trump. Um, But just the facts don't support it. And so that's a very long-winded way of me offering two examples so I can get to my third example to show this trend about how I am sort of underwhelmed by a lot of the things people are getting excited about is this whole mansion deal. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, Inside the beltway, it's kind of a big deal. It changes a narrative. God, we got to come up with some better words than narrative. Um, it 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 gives Biden a win, gives Biden actually a second win because he's also got a win on this chips thing. Um, and it is a sign that Manchin is uh, sort of back in play as a Democrat and he's sort of the, uh, you know, he's. Back in the, I think it was Matt Lewis used this line that, you know, uh, Manchin uses his superpower before he loses it, right? You know, so Manchin is the decisive vote in a 50-50 Senate. And so he's uh, making a play to get, you know, to use the leverage he's got at the last minute. And I understand if you're some, I guess, like solar panel manufacturer looking for some some sweet, sweet subsidies from Uncle Sam then, um, this, this legislation is a big deal for you. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, it's kind of, again, it's not, it's not a nothing burger. You can't spend 300 and something billion dollars and call it a nothing burger. Um, that's absolutely right. And and I guess the total price tag for this thing is like 700 and something billion, but most of that, it comes in the form of like deficit. the, the other 300 something comes, manifests itself with sort of you know tax revenue going to deficit deduction with the with the corporate minimum tax and i am not going to get in the weeds on that right here but basically the spending on the green stuff on the the, the extension of the affordable care act um comes to about 300 something 340 billion dollars or something now these could this could be the best wisest most responsibly spent money in the world, Um, which I think most people will understand that I don't necessarily think that's the case. But I remember not long ago, Bernie Sanders saying that he had already compromised when he demanded a $6 trillion build back better. And then he got pulled along to, uh, the consensus democratic view that it had to be $3 trillion. Um, you know, this massive, um, redesign of the social safety net. And, uh, and now this thing, which everyone's hailing is this massive victory that is like incredibly consequential, uh, for, you know, climate change and, and, prescription drugs and all of these things. And, and again, some of it is consequential and some of it isn't and whatever, but it's $300 billion. So it's basically 5% of where the progressives were a year ago. Um, 10% of where the progressives were six months ago. Um, and if you had said to Mitch McConnell and, uh, I don't know about Mitch McConnell because for him the scorecard isn't the money the scorecard is which party gets the win which party gets the loss but if you had said to like most conservatives um you know we could we could buy our way out of this um this whole sort of new new deal crap with um a compromise bill of 300 billion dollars in change uh most of us would have said, well, we'd be getting off cheap on that. And, um, I just think it's sort of hilarious the way progressives who were the ones who are entirely responsible, at least in the democratic party, right. For this whole Biden, you know, uh, energy siphoning, uh, presidency, debilitating, uh, delay in getting this stuff done um, they're the ones who forced that they're the ones who said that you know coming down from three trillion was a non-starter they're the ones who said it, you know for a long time that the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the build back better had to be linked and that um uh you know, the time for half measures was over and now they're all you know chest thumping and table thumping about getting uh you know, 10 cents on the dollar of what they were asking for six months ago. And everyone's sort of claiming it this great progressive victory and this great victory for Biden. Um, it's a victory for Biden, but, uh, it's just kind of funny how, like in the way the media is covering this and the way Democrats are talking about it and the way Republicans are talking about it, no one's sort of acknowledging that, that, um, the whole thing got shaved down to a fraction of what it once was was supposed to be. And I would argue that the reason, you know, why it's taken almost two years of Biden's presidency to get to this point is because he screwed it up. And, um, and so it's just, but what's funny about it is like, you know, and so the Republicans are screaming bloody murder about how this is an economy destroying inflation, causing yada, yada, yada. And look, I don't think we need to be spending this money right now, at least not in this way, and and all that. Those are all, I'm not talking about the policy issues here, but um, it seems pretty obvious to me that they were going to say that whatever the number was going to be. And in fairness, I don't know in fairness, but just in fairness to the facts, part of the reason why Republicans are so ticked off isn't really the price tag or even the spending. It's the way Schumer did this by, you know, he basically pulled a fast one on, on McConnell and, you know, and a lot of Republicans think he's dishonest about it. They're using reconciliation. They, they had signaled that they wouldn't. And then they did and yada, yada and the thing with whatever. Um, and so they're just sort of pissed off that going into the midterms, Schumer, uh, in, in a rare episode, got the upper hand on McConnell and gave Democrats running, um, across the country in November, uh, you know, A W in their column, and as a matter of partisan politics, I get why you would be really mad about that. But you know, as someone who just doesn't feel like they're that strong a rooting interest in either party these days, um, that doesn't mean I have to buy into the script about what a big deal this is. Um, This is you know, this is this is small beer compared to the stuff that Biden thought he was going to be able to do, and that all those historians told Biden to do. Um, and, uh, and for me, just a bunch of it just sort of feels like theater. I don't know if I'm going to write about this. So in the case that I am, I should probably move on. So there's been a lot of talk about manliness, um, of late. Apparently Josh Hawley has, um, um, A new book coming out on manhood um and um and then there was this guy well let's let's stick with holly for a second so like not since the tubin missile crisis um of a few of last year um has there been an opportunity more ripe for various um i should say more tumescent um more priapatic priapetic um with uh um opportunities for various schlong puns and uh and 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 double entendres or perhaps you know if you want to go back earlier than jeffrey Tubin, you could look back to the old um days of the uh the 1990s there was or early 2000s there was a special committee in Congress formed to investigate, I believe, Chinese fundraising and espionage, um, something like that. And the two heads of it were Chris Cox and Norman Dix. And the, um, the Cox Dix probe was very difficult to resist. And I, I should probably steer clear of this one. This is a family podcast. And two, um, um you know, we got there might be kids in the backseat of the car listening. And three, this just may be too, too rich a subject not to write a G file about it as well. So stay tuned. Who knows what I'll be writing about? It's, it's a mystery wrapped in an enigma. Um, and then there's Josh Holly. Uh, th- then there's this guy, uh, uh, Klingenstein, I think it's Ed Klingenstein, who's the chairman of the Claremont Institute, who, uh, there's this clip of a speech he gave talking about how. Uh, The reason why he's supporting Trump in 2024 is that uh, we need an old-fashioned manly man um, to to restore America. And that even if his manliness is flawed, it's better than the alternatives because we need a manly man. And I, I highly recommend everyone go read Kevin Williamson's take on the notion that Donald Trump is manly um it's pretty funny it's pretty good um i agree with it entirely I, I um although i have other complaints about trump's lack of qualifications to qualify as the avatar of manliness but um but kevin focuses on a lot of stuff that would at the very least hurt donald trump's feelings you know his obsession with makeup and his incredibly lavish um interior design style at some point kevin says something like Um, you know, he decorates his homes in a way that would have Liberace saying, tone it down, Nancy. Um, and, uh, but my, my problem with this idea that Trump is manly is a little more on the, and I'm sure Kevin agrees with me, um, is on more on the philosophical and, um, and, and virtue side of things. Um, like the kind of man how to put this in the 1990s there was a lot of talk about this stuff right and 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 a lot of guys i really like wrote a lot about about either manliness or um or character right character was an easier way to talk about it because first of all um you know womanliness doesn't sound right um, and and manliness is too, is in a, in a weird way, both is kind of too gendered for a lot of the stuff the character gets at. So character was a good way to sort of talk about the loss of virtues and stuff in a way that was separated from, you know, what is happening to masculinity, but they were, they were, and obviously they're, they're different things. There are problems with our understanding of character that applied off both sexes, you know, yes, all two of them. And, um, uh, and there are problems that have to do with um, the way we define manhood and masculinity and femininity and all that. And they don't necessarily all dovetail with the character debate, but you can see how they're linked. Anyway, there was a lot of this stuff in the 90s, in the in the 2000s, and I followed it pretty closely back then. And, um, and I always had sort of my own views on a lot of these things. And... Um, the left didn't like the character argument very much, and they poked holes at it in all sorts of ways, um, or they make fun of it in all sorts of ways. I don't know how many holes they actually poked. Um, and But they really mocked the manliness stuff. I think at one point, Al Franklin challenged uh, Rich Lowry to a wrestling match over some dispute about manliness. Uh, um, one of the things that, like, the, the left's caricature of manliness—it's sort of like you know the way the left describes white, you know, white supremacy and white culture and all these things. It's all of these. It's almost always these incredibly derogatory, um, you know, uh, caricatures of of white people, right? And the same would apply to um, the way the left would make fun of notions of, of men and masculinity and that, you know, anybody who was too boastful about their masculinity was overcompensating. And, um, there was all sorts of insecurity involved and, um, and besides toxic masculinity involved things like bullying and, 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 you know, sexual predation or what was in the 1990 late 80s and early 90s called womanizing which is always a fun use of grammar and then um uh you know in that secure men could you know this goes back the the liberal line on some of the stuff goes back to the the 80s you know um you know that that self-confident real men like alan alda are fine eating quiche and all of that and talking about their feelings and all of that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, my problem is, is that the definition of manliness that we're getting from, uh, these sort of throne sniffing, uh, Trump fanboys, um, of, you know, of all levels of the socioeconomic stratum is that they are in fact, embracing the, the left wing caricature of what masculinity is. Right. I mean, there it's the, the frat bro, um, the rude on purpose, um, the, um, never being willing to apologize, total lack of compassion. Um, the, I mean again I, I promise to move away from th- this kind of language but just the sort of metaphysical dickishness that defines so much of this 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 subculture in American life these days um, is supposed to be like the feature not the bug of mainland so I remember like you know I always have a soft spot in my heart despite my disagreements for Glenn Beck but I remember him talking about how and just being so disappointed in him about how Donald Trump, had was such an alpha dog and such a, you know, and the closest thing American culture has to James Bond and manliness, um, that, uh, that's why other Republicans are so jealous of him and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's basically, um, the Seb Gorkaism um, of various kinds on the right where if you have, if you have masculine toys and you talk like a jerk, um, you know, somehow that makes you more of a man. And if you're a bully, you're a man. And, um, and the thing that just drives me crazy is basically a big chunk of the right has embraced the left's caricature and insult of, of this stuff and said, yeah, no, you guys are actually right. We're just, you're, but we're actually serious about it. And that's grotesque to me. And it's, uh, it's, and it's tragic. Um, you know, like I recently rewatched, uh, the entire run of the wire. Um, and you know, it took a little while, but it was, um, it holds up. It's great. And, um, if you've seen it, you know, in the second season, there's, uh, you know, one of the major plot lines is about the, the, these younger guys who work the docks um, at the, at the port of Baltimore. And, um, one of these, one of them is this guy Ziggy who is, who would be today like sort of, I mean, I guess he actually got girls, but like he was, um, you know, incredibly insecure, constantly trying to prove himself, um, prove how masculine he was, prove how tough he was when he got money, he, you know, spent it lavishly. He would light you know cigarettes with a hundred dollar bill at the bar um and he was in, in in short he was sort of a sad putz and um the um and his cousin who's in it was less of a putz uh but he also was was kind of this immature guy and, and because the wire has these sort of sort of traditionally sort of marxist indictments of sort of uh Post industrial uh, urban liberalism, uh, the part of the argument, you know, the implicit argument was is that these guys were like this because they couldn't have uh, a good wage at a job that gave them a sense of satisfaction and meaning and, and all of that. And we can put that argument aside for another time. Um, but to me, like the, the manliest man in this whole season was, um, the Ziggy's uncle, the other guy's father, who was this longtime union worker, retired, refused to take sort of grafty political, uh, giveaway jobs, um, love to go over the racing form, but refused to bet Um, because he thought that was too tempting, uh, stayed out of the bars and cared about raising his family and doing right. And that guy was the mensch. And, um, we used to have, um, on the right, a much more serious understanding of what it meant to be a man and, um, a good man. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's a little analogous to this argument I've been making for years about, you know, the problems with populism, that the hero in the American political tradition is the individual who stands up against the mob and not, um, and not the mob. And, um, you know, the, 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 the intellectual rights understanding of what makes for a good man isn't sexual con- conquest, it's sexual restraint um it's not um you know spending lavishly and showing off it's spending productively and saving um it's not cruelty but compassion um and compassion uh not in the sort of liberal sense of just proving you're more compassionate than other people by spending other people's money but things like tough love and moral seriousness and um, I think everybody listening to this gets what I'm talking about, about what like what an actual good man is like. Um, and they, we know it implicitly. Um, we have different people in our lives that model that. You know, for me, it was my dad, a little bit my father-in-law. Um, um, and the idea that somehow... The right is now going to buy into this idea that boorishness and cruelty and uh, and and it sort of bullying, stupidity, and know nothingism is the definition of manhood. Um, is so depressing to me, and it's particularly depressing coming from someplace like Claremont. I mean, which again has has, has, has had demonstrable problems for a while. You know, you have, um, but this idea that somehow the place that has been arguing for prudence and statesmanship for decades, um, is now buying into this idea that we need this odish or this oafish brutalist, um, man boy nonsense is, uh, is just so depressing. And so stupid. I mean, so fundamentally stupid. I mean, it's sort of like, I don't get how people think Trump is particularly manly. I mean, I really don't. Um, let me put it this way. I get why they think he, he's manly. I don't get how you can think he is manly um, and not have it be a poor reflection on you. And if I lose listeners over there, that, that's fine. But if you look at Donald Trump and say, that's the kind of, go- that's the kind of man I want my son to be, um that's the kind of man i want to be then you got problems um and it's sort of like how i can't figure out i can't really get my head around at this point decent people who don't see the con don't see the grift in trump um and part of and so it's sort of analogous to that because part of that grift part of that con is this idea that he is this particularly manly dude and he's just not i mean he's Maybe you know. Maybe this is a revealing thing about my own psychology, but like a person more different than my father, I cannot think of. You know, uh, and you know, and and sometimes, arguably, to my dad's detriment, you know, my I think my dad would have been better off if he was um, more comfortable, uh, you know, in, in social situations. My dad was kind of a shy guy. I had to get to know him to have a conversation. He was brave if the, in the sense that he overcame his shyness and all of that, if circumstances warranted it, but he, it was not comfortable for him. You know, there, there were parts of that kind of stuff diluted, you know, a lot of Trump where, you know, my dad could have used a thimble full of some of that stuff, but on like the moral and intellectual serious side, um, you know, Trump pales by comparison to people like my dad, you know, my dad was a mensch. My dad did little bits of kindness for people. My dad treated everybody with respect. Um, my dad cared more about his family than anything else. You know, you just go down this list. Um, um, you know, my dad thought it was really important to live a life of integrity and not lie. And, um, there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about like, what would my dad do um, when I'm trying to figure out what the right thing to do is? And um, the only time Trump would ever enter into that kind of calculation is, what would Trump do? And then i do the opposite. And for the right, which thinks that, which has a, this deep investment in complicated moral arguments about proper behavior and not giving into your feelings and your passions to embrace this just, stupid, you know, testicle tanning nonsense version of manhood. Um, it's just so friggin' embarrassing. Um, anyway, maybe I'll write about that. Uh, um, oh, but since we're on the subject of manhood and all the rest, um, this is a little complicated. Um, uh, I don't know if I want to write about this because it is so complicated. Um, But, you know, there was this vote recently, I guess it's still pending in the Senate about um, recognizing in law the status of gay marriage, same-sex marriage. And the debate on the right about it has been muted because no Republican wants to touch it. Um, uh, Maddie Kearns over at NR, um, who I've never met, um, but I am so in love with her voice, um, that I kind of have a euphonious crush on her. Um, uh, she's Scottish and there's just something about it. Just, I just love, um, uh, I think she makes a good point when she says that for, um, the sort of center, right same-sex marriage, opposition to same-sex marriage or the issue of same-sex marriage plays kind of a similar role that the transgender stuff plays on the center left. It's, uh, it's embarrassing for a lot of people to talk about it, to deal with it, to either defend or, or criticize the, the, the activist sides of, of their own side. Um, and just sort of just don't want to talk about it at all. And I think that sociologically, that's right, even though I think there are obvious differences between the two issues, um, which I think she concedes as well, um, but they're sort of linked. Anyway, it reminded me, when I was trying to figure out what to talk about this morning, I saw that she had um, written something on it, um, and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, It's called uh, Marital Clash, Why Social Conservatives Oppose Recognizing Same-Sex Marriage in Federal Law. And it's sort of a follow-up to a conversation that she had with um, uh, my friend Michael Brennan-Doherty and with Rich on the editor's podcast. And I'm not really so much responding to her. as actually more to, to Michael and the, just the general tone and tenor of the conversation they had. The magazine, you know, NR came out against that legislation. And I think they came out of it, came out against it for intellectually serious, morally serious and consistent reasons. And I'm not that's not the argument I want to have um, right now. I think I probably would have voted for the legislation um, in part, you know, and this is something, this is a point that Michael made, which I think he's right about. Um, on one level, it's a really good thing that Congress is doing this, um, you know, regardless of what you think of the, the, the substance of it, because, what Congress is doing is what conservatives said Congress should have done on all sorts of issues for the last 50 years, you know, including Roe, which is if you have a position that you want to be established as law, the law of the land of the United States, pass a law. Don't just let a Supreme Court ruling be the law of the land because Supreme Court rulings can be reversed or overturned. And, um, if you want to instantiate for all time your view on some issue, uh, pass some laws about it. Lock it in. Write it down. It can still get overturned, but it's harder, right? All, and, and this is like the, this, the, the, this, the one secret life hack of understanding what the conservative Supreme Court is doing that so confounds so many people. Is it's not outlawing a whole bunch of stuff, right? It is not banning abortion. It is saying that legislatures can write laws about abortion and all sorts of other things. And it says he says something to the about the way a lot of people on the left understand law and how law works. That they think letting legislatures make decisions about these things is no different than banning them. It's just a very weird bit of confusion. The Supreme Court is not doing what a lot of the hyperbole and rhetoric from the left and the media is saying it's doing. It's saying that these are questions that can be democratically decided by people. And so if you want to have these things democratically decided in your favor, legislate. And that's what they're doing with this recognizing gay marriage and interracial marriage, which I think was a bit of a cheap, uh point scoring thing um that was you know sort of gratuitous but at the same time kind of understandable given uh you know the way clarence thomas i would say unnecessarily chummed the waters in the dobbs decision um regardless it's been a week so if i'm mischaracterizing anybody's position let me just say I'll, 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 i'll 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 just put it in a some say kind of framing so i'm not Mischaracterizing any individual's position. Some say, you know, when it comes to gay marriage, that, you know, there was this choice, you know, over the last 20 years to either have it or not have it, right? And uh, by society, you know, through Obergefell on, on the Supreme Court deciding to legalize gay marriage, um, damage was done to the institution of marriage. Um, and, you know, some of that damage can be undone, uh, if we could restore the traditional understanding of marriage, it gets complicated because the traditional understanding of marriage was, and this is part of, uh, of Maddie's point, uh, the traditional understanding of marriage has been under siege for a very long time because the key thing, you know, the, the let's put it this way. If, if if homosexual people did not exist, but everything else stayed constant marriage would still be in trouble because the traditional institution of the traditional understanding of marriage was, um, about raising kids about, you know, the family. And this is a point that I write a little bit about in suicide of the West and, um, the guys over at the Institute uh, Institute for the Study of Family or Institute for Family Studies, uh, Brad Wilcox and those guys—they um, make pretty explicitly is that part of part of the thing that has really hurt marriage over the last two centuries is the romantic ideal of marriage because the romantic ideal of marriage, which says there's this one true love out there, and you if you're not physically, emotionally, aesthetically blindingly attracted to the other person um then they're not the one and um the problem with that is that uh first of all that's not really how love works i mean this is the argument it's not really how love works it's not how marriage works you know arranged marriages often are have greater levels of satisfaction uh it is an agreement between two parties to raise children um with certain values, certain religious beliefs, you know, you can go down the long list and that there are cycles to the relationship uh, in marriage that um, uh, are sort of s- seasonal and that you, you the, that the full richness of marriage unfolds over time and sort of sexual attraction uh, is, is a small part of that larger calculation. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think there's you know, other issues that are, that are less compelling to me about all of that, but I think it's a perfectly valid and serious point. And the more you think of marriage purely as this sort of lifestyle affect, um, that isn't deeply rooted in a faith tradition and in the, in the pursuit of raising children, the more it becomes sort of unnecessary other than for the tax benefits and no real different than a domestic partnership, right? And uh, uh, Michael uses this, Michael had this funny line um, on that podcast that Maddie quotes here, I'd forgotten about it, where he says um, that the, there's this Cialis, you know, the erectile dysfunction pill, um, there's an ad for it you've probably seen, um that michael says symbolizes the popular conception of marriage these days and he says it's two adult consumers sitting in separate bathtubs at a resort with no children not even touching each other um and maddie adds it is a sterile and luxury vision of sex not concerned with family even less with society but rather with emotional fulfillment of two close associates Michael rightly describes this ideal as an idol, one that will quote, continue to exert power until it is smashed, unquote. Now, again, I think there's merit in some of all of that. Um, I also think it's like at some level just wrong. Um, certainly about the ad. In the ad, the, the, the old couple is sort of touching, is, is sort of holding hands. Um, let us remember that the ad is about a pill that makes intimacy more possible with this couple so uh more than holding hands is is implicit in uh the context of the ad and it's about older people who are um you know whose kids have probably left the nest and are you know entering a new chapter in their lives now again I'm not a huge defender of, of, boner pills and, 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 and those ads, I wish all those ads were off the air as far as I'm concerned. But, um, I think th- this sort of description of all that is, 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 a, is a bit wrong, um, about how people at that, even the people in the ad, how they, they view sex, um, and view marriage, um, you know conceivably that these are people who've been married for a long time. They're certainly age appropriate for each other in these ads. Um, which means that they've stuck with marriage for a long time. Um, at least that's implied. And, you know, that's an important thing too. But I I think that one of the problem to get back to the the same sex marriage thing, and this is one of these issues that, you know, I've, I've changed my mind on over the years. Um, uh, very much in favor of civil unions for a long time, largely for the arguments that, uh, you know, my friends make against gay marriage insofar as marriage is an institution that predates, um, liberalism it predates the modern state. Um, it is deeply rooted in, in religious traditions and religious conceptions and the state just simply willy nilly re- redefining it. Um, struck me at the time as a bridge too far. And I, and there are lots of people who uh, still believe that. And I think they do it for sincere unbigoted reasons and that's all fine. Um, and so I was in favor of, uh, I was in favor of civil unions because I found the arguments from same sex marriage proponents, um, very compelling about the examples that they use that were offensive, right? I mean, so like they would often quote, people who've been together for 30 years who couldn't leave property to each other in certain circumstances, or people who had been to- with each other for a quarter century that didn't have visitation rights at the hospital. Um, uh, and you can sort of go on a lot that kind of stuff. And the libertarian part of me thinks that's just ridiculous on its surface, regardless of the question of same-sex marriage, like, I should be able to do with my property um, and my right to free association whatever the hell I want. And if 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 those problems are the things that make gay marriage require, you know, m- make, make the argument for gay marriage, let's fix those things with something called civil unions um, that will um, solve the problems that people keep bringing up. And of course the response to that at the time was, um, you're, you want to make same sex, uh, partnerships, second class to marriage and have a two tiered system. And, um, and you know, the reality of it was, was that proponents of, of, of gay marriage, they wanted the word because the word was the thing that, um, conveyed acceptance, inclusion, uh, um, status, all of that. Right. And, and, and I, and I understand that. And I, I even understood it then, but, um, I kind of wanted to hang on to the, the, the traditional definition of marriage. And, you know, when I came out in favor of civil unions, man, did the, the, the sort of Christian right crowd go hammer and tongs after me as a sellout and, you know, moral relativist and yada, yada, yada. Because back then, I, I shouldn't say the Christian right crowd, it's a big group. Some people on the Christian right, sort of usual subset, suspect types uh, attacked me. And because back then, the position on the right was um, even civil unions was was too good because it normalized and accepted gay behavior um, and homosexuality and, 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 and you all remember that argument. And um, and that's sort of my, the point I kind of want to make is that, um, uh, well, I should finish the last point. So then, you know, uh, as the, as the debate matured or evolved, um, my clinging to the civil unions thing, which was seen as a really left-wing position, a sort of Howard Dean position um for a couple of years, all of a sudden became an unaccept- unacceptably right-wing position because it would not sort of just give up and surrender to the argument for for gay marriage. And um, um so anyway, it just shows you how things can change in a short period of time. But I want to get back to this thing about the the sort of the uh, the demonization of homosexuality, right? Um, and in some cases that wasn't just, um, figurative, but, but liberal, but literal, you know, there are people who actually thought it was demonic and, and all that. Now, um, my recollection about how they did the, how the conversation went in the podcast, they basically made it an argument about how we had a fork in the road and we can go one direction or we can go another direction. And as a society, we went in the direction of gay marriage, which reinforced all of these problems with the, de- the deterioration of our conception of marriage. And um, here is the problem with that version. And you know, one hears it often is that part of the problem with the the choices as society we were going to make is that. If we had, let's put it, the most compelling arguments from Jonathan Rauch and Andrew Sullivan back then were for um, for gay marriage were very neoconish, and by that I mean they employed arguments about the roles of institutions, about the roles of about the nature of sort of human nature um, and. Um, and they were very sociological, right? Um, and part of Andrew in particular, his argument that I found very compelling back then, and, you know, just for the record, Andrew and I were friends, we were enemies, we were frenemies, we had arguments, uh, you know, we had a long and storied, uh, blogging relationship back in the day. Um, but part of the argument that I found most compelling was. Andrew argued, I think rightly, and I'm paraphrasing, right? So I'm not saying he was as crude in his formulations as all of this, but, um, this is sort of the argument as laundered through my own brain and memory. Um, uh, men, particularly young men are horn dogs, and they, um, are uncivilized and they have robust sexual appetites and from time immemorial, the role of, uh, society and norms and institutions was to restrain, curtail, civilize men and their outsized young men and their outsized passions, channel them in productive ways, channel them into productive institutions. And, you know, there was a famous sort of argument in the late nineties, early two thousands, along these lines, where Andrew's position was marriage civilizes men. And I think it was Mona Charon. I don't want to be unfair. Um, And it was a great line. And whoever it was, but I think it was Mona said, um, marriage doesn't civilize men. uh, Women do. And the truth is, both things are true. Um, In the context of heterosexual men, the civilizing power of of women is extremely powerful um but that power is most amplified and best harnessed in the context of marriage and this what you know a lot of people on the left in those days were against gay marriage they wanted to smash the institution of marriage this was a big thing in the 60s and early 70s which, um, you know, smash monogamy, um, smash the institution of marriage, smash the institution of the family, which is this idea that goes back to like Frankfurt school types, like, you know, Horkheimer and whoever, um, that the, the family itself is a patriarchal institution and that we need to be liberated from it. We should all live on communes and, and, and recycle our urine or whatever. And, you know, so like a lot of the, harshest attacks that Roush and, and Sullivan got were from the left were from these people who wanted to have this, um, open moral universe with no stigma attached to promiscuity and orgies and multiple partners and yada, yada, yada. And, um, um and so the, the problem with the time was like, you couldn't have a society, let me put it this way. If you were a young man, young gay guy, and society says, um, you can't get married and the institution of marriage is not available to you. Let's put it this way. The institution of a happy marriage is not available to you. And I should pause there for a second because that's sort of the point, right? In the, in the pre-romantic era, right? Where the the concept of finding the one, your one true love, your one life partner who, um, was with you, um, um, uh, in every regard and was, you know, your, your sexual soulmate and, and everything else. Um, back in the days where arranged marriages were the things where sex had more of a utilitarian productive function about creating a family, raising a family and all of that kind of thing. Um, the argument that a gay guy couldn't get access to the institution of marriage was in fact wrong right because um uh marriage wasn't for the fulfillment of all of your you know sexual desires and appetites it was for this other stuff and um but that changed and the understanding of what marriage was for changed and you can say for good or for ill that's you know a different argument um and now you have Young gay men, you tell them you can't have access to this institution. Um, And oh, by the way, you can't be promiscuous either because that's gross and that's immoral. Now, if you're a young gay dude, you know, what is your response to that? I mean, it's like you can be, you know, you're not going to be celibate and you're not going to be, you know, in a sham marriage. and. Um, and if you're going to be stigmatized as grotesque and immoral, you might as well, you know, have a lot of fun in the process. And I think that the thing that people miss about this is that the, the victory of gay marriage was, um, a victory for bourgeois morals. It was a victory for sort of, um, uh, incorporating homosexuals who, are human beings worthy of respect and dignity, um, into a civilizing institution, um, that is like hugely important. And, um, the idea that like, Oh, if we had just taken door number two and, and prevented gays from being able to get married in same sex relationships, um, uh, you can do a, you know, a straight line projection about how society would have worked out misses the sort of dynamic scoring of this, which is that you would have had a lot more radical arguments about the role of marriage, about the role of sexual gratification, um, in our culture that I would argue would actually have ended up being worse for marriage over the long run but instead you know the the almost the quintessential image of um, a gay couple of these guys is, these days is like two dudes pushing a stroller and um, you know and it turns out that like uh, you know this the understanding of marriage as an institution about children um, has wide popularity among same-sex couples and they get it too. Now again, I understand why cultural conservatives of all sorts of stripes might have problems with with those families or what, you know, what those families teach their kids and all that kind of stuff. But suck it up, you know, because that's where we are. And um I've made total and complete peace with 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 gay marriage even if I can still respect and understand the other arguments about it. Um, and, uh, and I don't necessarily think, you know, you're a bad person if, you know, as a believing Catholic or Orthodox Jew, you want space for your faith or your traditional understanding of, of what the term means, implies, um, and requires that's, I think that is an entirely legitimate thing, but this stuff we're hearing admittedly at the margins about the idea of sort of undoing gay marriage. Um, you know, there was that some idiotic thing that the I know I have to be more specific that the Texas GOP issued, um, about homosexuality or about gay marriage. I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was some boob baby thing. Um, and you see other little hints of it around um you see it in the, at the fringes not at national review but like in the fringes of this debate over about the gop and this 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 legislation thing um i just think it's crazy right i mean it's just crazy forget the morality part about it you know um and f- you know are you just think about it as a political thing i mean are you really going to tell me that we're going to go after having a decade or more of people, um, knowing gay married couples, maybe being part of gay married couples, being related to gay married couples, um, uh, um, being raised by couples, uh, that we're now going to, we're going to unwind that. I mean, politically, how is that going to work? Um, um, is that the argument that you want to be happening having? Um, it just strikes me as just bizarre that this is sort of caught on at all and um, you hear from some people there's this argument that if if the right gives up its objection to gay marriage, which again is a is a as a policy battle something they lost a long time ago. But if they give up even the rhetorical or rearguard action, um, opposition, uh, to gay marriage that, you know, the right will end up becoming a sort of feckless, socially libertarian, uh, movement like it is in Europe. And I just don't know what that, where the hell that comes from. Um, like have, has social conservatism weakened? since Obergefell um has social conservatism uh become more libertine since Obergefell or because of Obergefell um you know look in one sense you could say yes uh but that's not because of gay marriage that's because of Donald Trump you know I mean, Donald Trump the serial adulterer um and sexual predator uh so much of the the social conservatives have given him a carve out because manliness is manly and full of manful manliness um and he is an instrument of our Lord um doing you know God's work um while, you know while having the free time to sleep with porn stars um if 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 you complain to about the about moving, in a more libertine direction for the the social conservatives um you know look to yourselves and what you've allowed and tolerated um but there's just no evidence that the gay marriage thing the gay you know movement on gay marriage is what has made um has driven this the social conservatives in a more libertine direction or that social conservatives except for their embarrassing. Uh, double standard for, for Trumpism, um, has become less socially conservative. Um, it's, you know, I mean, we're watching the rise of this Christian na- nationalism nonsense. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, people like, you know, me and Ross Douthat were making fun of all the people screaming theocracy, theocracy everywhere. Um, and now you got people openly calling for theocracy. Um, and you can say that's, uh, a result in part by stuff like Obergefell, but that's sort of the point is like, there's a right-wing reaction, um, not towards libertarianism, but towards, um, extreme social conservatism, um, that was the, was the result of that. Um, and so anyway, I just, uh, this, this whole sort of approach, just strikes me as as madness and 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 needlessly cruel, um, if it has any chance of success, which I don't think it does. I mean, this is one of the reasons why people saying that, you know, if they can take away the right to abortion, they can take away you know the right to same sex marriage. And I I get, Clarence Thomas doesn't like, uh, uh was it uh the substantive due process stuff the extent I understand it I don't like it either I don't you know and again I think he was being irresponsibly trollish in in raising certain cases but he's also been perfectly consistent for 30 years about not liking substantive due process and um but the idea that somehow the Supreme Court is going to uh negate I don't know how many gay marriage certificates there are out there but like um, millions, uh, just strikes me as insane. And, um, and it strikes me as insane as a matter of sort of legal and political analysis, but it also would strike me as insane as a sort of a, a moral political issue if it was done by legislatures. I mean, it just, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I, I often quote T.S. Eliot, there's no such thing as a lost cause because there's no such thing as a truly one cause. So yeah, I do think it's it's possible. But a political party that made that their top priority, um, you know, it, it would be suicidal and and just cruel. And like, anyway, on the legal point, just because I didn't mention it, you know, there's a thing called reliance interest where if you've, where there's, we could have a law or practice in this country that is, you know, strictly speaking unconstitutional. Um, but because so much stuff is built up around it and therefore depends upon it, um, that has huge precedential value in terms of whether or not to overturn it. And I think I've used this example before, but you know, uh, judge Bork used to argue who I knew pretty well, um, that there's a, perfectly sound intellectually sound argument that paper money paper currency is unconstitutional but it would be insanity for a supreme court to rule in a fit of hyper originalism that legal tender you know like the dollar bill is an un, is is unconstitutional and therefore worthless as a medium of exchange. I mean, think about what would just grind to a halt because of that. And it's it's reliance interest and like people have built their entire lives and raised adopt you know raise adopted kids to raise in the family based upon uh, the assurance that this is legal. It's it's very popular with you know Americans. It's even a, even a majority of Republicans are fine with it. And until a year ago, I was unaware of anybody still fighting, um, the, you know, for the dream of undoing it. And I just think this is one of those ships that sail. It doesn't mean that you can't stick up for marriage. It doesn't mean that you can't or, sh- or sh- never mind shouldn't, um, make all sorts of arguments about the importance of marriage, about how marriage is an institution needs help. Um, but, uh, A bunch of gay people getting married, raising kids, getting a mortgage together, um, I don't think at this point does any serious damage to the idea of of the institute of the institution as it's practically understood today. And even whatever damage you can make theoretically or um at a high level of of, of abstraction. um, uh, that damage is so minimal compared to, um, the other challenges and problems that, that marriage faces. And I just think it's like there are better places for the rights energy on this. And this is just like, it's just, it's one of the few places where I think I'm just on a different page than I am with my friends at, at National Review. And they're, you know, um, it happens every now and then. Anyway, um, I feel like I was clearing my throat and, um, rambling this entire time. No idea if that's the case, but I'm sure you'll tell me. Um, I got some feedback from people saying I talk about stuff on Twitter too much, so I, I tried not to talk about Twitter at all. Um, and I think the next time you hear from me, uh, at least on the solo, it will be from, uh, Uh, New England because we're going on a family vacation, um, in Maine. More about that later. And I don't know who the guests are next week, but, uh, um, tune in to find out. So with that, thanks for listening and, um, I'll see you next time.